and thank you for joining us. Welcome to Zooming In on Hate, a podcast series that brings together the brightest minds to figure out solutions to hate speech and disinformation. So we regularly speak to various voices from tech, from civil society, law enforcement and policymakers to identify and analyse the latest trends on social media. This podcast is part of the European Observatory of Online Hate, or EOOH in short. Today we have a special edition for you on the upcoming implementation of the Digital Services Act in the European Union. My name is Lydia L. Corey from TechScan. And my name is Hannah Richter, I'm the campaign manager at Dare to be Grey. So we're really, really pleased to welcome Liva Vikmane, Policy and Advocacy Officer, and Josephine Ballon, who is the Head of Legal at HateAid. And this episode is going to delve into the upcoming Digital Services Act. Liva and Josephine, thanks a million for joining us on Zooming In on Hate. Hi. Hi. So let's start. get started. Um, can you guys tell us a bit about your remit and how you got off the ground with HateAid? Yeah, thank you so much for having us here in this podcast. We are really excited um, about the podcast and also about the up- upcoming DSA. Um, and we um, are HateAid and HateAid is a consultation center for victims of online violence based in Berlin. We offer consultation and emotional support and also cybersecurity counseling to the victims of online hate. And uh, we also offer litigation financing. So law enforcement is also really a subject um, that we are dealing a lot with. And of course, we are also concerned to change the overall conditions for the victims, which is why we're doing a lot of advocacy work and also uh, work with the judiciary and law enforcement directly to educate them. Um, so these things are really important for us. We see our um, ourselves as the, the lawyers of the victims of online violence. And that's uh, why we also work very, very closely on the Digital Services Act. Fantastic. And the Digital Services Act is going to impact every citizen of the EU who uses digital media. So I, I think we wanted to invite you on to get our heads around it and really understand what it entails. Can we can we start right at the beginning and, and tell us how the process has gone so far, what we've gone through to get to the, this point in the DSA? So I think it's important to look at the road to the legislation a little bit as well, you know, because uh, we have uh, been living with the big social media giants for a while now. And um, this is uh, kind of the first attempt in the EU level to regulate them. Of course, there has been like a copyright um, directive that regulates the copyright and the GDPR that regulates the, the privacy and, you know, that sets the kind of parameters for the user's data privacy. But this is really the first attempt in the EU level um, to regulate how social media and other digital services operate um, kind of um, holistically. And um, there have been several member states who have uh, their own laws. And I think that the EU, of course, saw that the scene is very fragmented and they wanted to foster both the innovation, but also provide a safe environment for users online. So that's kind of a little bit the thought uh, behind the Digital Services Act. I can just give you my impression um, of how the DSA went and also what were the starting conditions that we found. Um, so we are an organization that comes from Germany. Uh, we have a high 
attention uh, for the whole topic of online hate, online violence uh, for quite some time now. We even had the national regulation already going on long before the DSA was born and that's uh, where we have a very specific view on this topic. And what was a bit shocking to me is when we arrived on the European legislative landscape uh, was that there was a very, very strong focus on data privacy and on protecting users from overblocking, which is really important. Both are really important issues, even to us. Um, and that's why we have to talk about them and we have to take them really seriously. But they are not the only thing that needs to be um, safeguarded on the Internet, um, because we see in our consultation, which is an experience of um, more than 2000 um, people that reached out to us in the last three years now, um, that there is a lot of violence out there and that people feel helpless when they are attacked on social media um, by mostly right-wing actors, but also, of course, by other, um, by other actors that play a role there uh, because the social media companies ignore them um, and they don't know how to do, how to defend themselves. Access to justice is just not given because it's expensive and really um, hard work to go to court. Um, and we also know that hate online for many people who are attacked is not a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And that's uh, why we think it's so important to keep them in mind when legislating and when regulating the online sphere, because in the end, freedom of expression is not a one-way road. Uh, we need to protect the freedom of expression of those who are attacked on the internet um, in order to have a space with freedom, where freedom of expression is granted for everybody, because if you don't feel safe because there are so many out there misusing their freedom of expression, if other people, which is mostly marginalized groups, activists, politicians, journalists, don't feel safe to express their opinion anymore about political topics, but also about other topics, then their freedom of expression is also at stake. That's why we have to find a balance. And I think what we owe to the users and also what the platforms is owe to the users, which is the least thing that they can do, is to have this discussion and just not ignore it. And then I think we also have to take into account that uh, social media and big tech companies have been quite a black box for a while. Uh, so we don't really know how they operate. We don't know how many content moderators they deploy. We don't know how their algorithms are really set up. And these are all the things that affect the end experience for the user, you know, let's say in a, in a hate speech uh, scenario, it really is important how they moderate the content, you know, or is there anybody who's going to, on the other side, reply to them if there's anybody who's going to help. Um, so these are also some of the things that we have been looking to get better transparency within the Digital Services Act. But then eventually, you know, we hope that this transparency will lead for improvements in terms of content moderation, how they staff um, for the, their trust and safety teams, for instance. So. These are also some of the some of the kind of hopes for the DSA that um, there are provisions that can uh, make them to disclose more information, and that is also very good. Thank you both of you. Um, well, so you've just started touching on that, Liva, um, about uh, what the DSA will do in terms of transparency and and content moderation. Um, but what else can we expect to to see um, improvements of or um, being the social media companies getting held accountable for um, with regard to the DSA? 
the basic advantage of the DSA is that on the one hand, it will finally set a framework for online services in, in the EU, because when we deal with online services, we always have this international perspective, which makes it really, really hard to legislate and also to enforce the law of member states um, if the headquarter um, is in another European country and we still have the country of origin principle in place in the European Union, which means that basically the companies only have to stick to the law where their headquarter uh, is situated. Uh, so that causes a lot of trouble. That's why we are really happy that there is finally a framework that is applicable in the European Union overall. The second thing is that other than the legislation that we had so far in Germany, for example, but also in other countries like Austria and France, is uh, that we um, have the situation that um, the Digital Services Act will apply to all online services, uh, not only to the very big social media platforms, although they will have special um, rules that only apply to them because of their size. Um, but that's also important because we see that also other platforms can pose really um, dangerous risks to society um, that are smaller and so far not regulated at all, such as um, business profile, um, business um, social networks, and also porn platforms, for example, that for example that are really really dangerous um, for image-based abuse, for example, and are not regulated um, at all so far. Um, so that's the two basic um, advantages that we see, especially also from a from a German perspective. Um, and in general, we hope that the Digital Services Act will really bring a bit more equality of arms between the users and the online platforms, especially the big social media platforms, because there will be certain rights for users um, that can be that can be pursued by them. Um, when it comes to content moderation, um, for example, um, they will have the opportunity to appeal content decisions and even to have a third party deciding about it in an out-of-court settlement uh, mechanism, which is not um, the access to justice that we hope for, that makes the courts more accessible, but it is at least an option to have a low threshold um, opinion of a third party, a third and independent party, we hope at least. And of course, it will bring uh, more means to oversight and also transparency regulations which are really important to finally understand how these big tech giants work and how they do their decision making, which is the black box, as Liva said before. Um, We're also very keen and curious to see how social media companies will apply an article that says that they have to be accessible for users. Uh, so now, for instance, uh, if something happens to you, you can't really reach face like Facebook, for instance. And um, well, it doesn't really say that you can be able to call them, but uh, the DSA says that uh, there should be a way to reach them that is uh, by non-automated means. So, you know, they can't just say that um, to, to give you automatic reply to an email that you sent to them, for, for, for example. So that's also something that we don't really know how it's going to be applied, but there is a hope for a better communication between users and the platforms. And then I think uh, there's also a very interesting thing for uh, civil society who have been very active in the hate speech domain already before because it um, pins down how trusted flaggers 
should cooperate uh, between the like with the platforms, so the organizations and the platforms. Um, and for just maybe to give a couple of words about the trusted flaggers, there those are organizations who are um, um, flagging content that is uh, like illegal or hateful content to platforms uh, through so-called trusted channels. So they are known organizations who have expertise. Um, in the hate speech um, area, and then the platforms know that the, the content that they flag is trustworthy, know that they would not abuse the status and abuse this uh, power. So um, in, in the DSA, there is a provision on the trusted flaggers, and there will be like a procedure set up. And uh, well, it's not really clear whether it's going to be the only way how trusted flaggers can function, but it's going to give um, some certain obligations to uh, the companies to really um, reply to trusted flaggers and process their notifications faster. Um, of course, we hope that users' notifications will be taken as seriously as the ones from trusted flaggers. Um, but here, um, so far, the social media companies have been uh, taking the initiative and organized these trusted flaggers and trusted partners. So here now, when it's going to be in the law, it's going to be a little bit more precise and they will have certain obligations as well. So that is also uh, very good. Um. Excellent. That's <clears throat> such a really helpful overview. And I, I think that'll give our listeners a chance to to understand in greater detail what the DSA is going to bring. So I'd love to know what role did HateAid play in the lead up to into campaigns that have brought the DSA to the to the point it's at now? What, what our role as hate aid was in the discussion of the DSA and also in our campaigning was as one of the very first players in the debate and also in the lobbying around this file to bring the, the rights of those who are attacked by online violence on social media into the debate because it was clearly underrepresented in the very beginning and there were not many organizations out there um, that were at least addressing um, these, um, the, yeah, these fears that we had um, that the Digital Services Act will completely neglect um, those who are attacked on the internet. Um, so that was our, our main goal. Um, I think we were in some regards quite successful uh, with this um, and yeah that's uh, what what was also the focus of our work um, to create the equality of arms between um, the users and the platforms um, our activities were mainly focusing on appeal mechanisms um, on a bit more access to justice and also on holding the platforms accountable for their content decisions from both sides, not only from the sides of the uploaders who might um, be confronted with overblocking, um, but also from the side of the users that report content to online platforms and are just um, ignored by them, which is from our experience, from our consultation experience um, happening so many times out there, but still um, nobody talks about it. Um, and then we had uh, we embarked on our own petition because we thought it's important to involve people and also our own community uh, into this work of the Digital Services Act. And you know, I'm I myself I'm I come from Latvia and uh, Hate Aid is a German organization. And to me, it was also very interesting to observe 
uh, how the Digital Services Act was debated in Germany. And to, to me, it looked like it was extensively debated. And then when I looked at like Latvian information space, there was just so little about it. And I think that, well, our petition was mainly targeted at German audience, but then there were international elements and we had also international partners. Um, for instance, INAF was one of the partners in the petition. And um, so I think the petition also allowed people to see what is the DSA, you know, and see that there is something coming up and why it is important. Uh, so we did, an, uh, did a petition and the petition was on gender-based violence online. Uh, because it is um, a curing phenomena. Uh, women experience much more sexualized violence online. It's uh, it's different. It's much. It's often much more toxic. Of course, taking account the intersections that you know, it's not only women. It's it's also you can be a woman, but also LGBTQ uh, community. Um, it's also um, much more racialized hate. So uh, taking into account these intersections of hate. And um, so we we had quite a simple demands, I would say, uh, you know, to um, to have um, the hateful content uh, deleted. Uh, we had uh, a demand of um, having a better transparency for the algorithms um, and better accountability there. Uh, we had a demand to um, deal with um, the image-based abuse or the so-called revenge porn. Uh, so to address more gender specific things as well in uh, the DSA. And uh, we, so this was one of our campaigns. And then at the end of the petition, we managed to hand um, the, uh, the book with the names of the signatories and the, the entire um, 30,000 people, around 30,000 people who signed um, to the lead um, negotiator in the European Parliament, um, Ms. Skaldemuse. So that was also very good. Um, and then we also were part of the coalition called People versus Big Tech. Because as Josefina explained, our own demands were very focused on immediate support for victims of online violence and people who are um, experiencing uh, violence online. Uh, but then we also um, thought that this is the opportunity um, to really tackle um, the hateful ecosystem of the big tech, um, how they um, choose to have products that drive hate uh, through their engagement. For instance, uh, we also um, communicated uh, quite a lot and engaged in some activities at a Facebook whistleblower, Francis Hogan, uh, who revealed in this very crucial time of negotiations um, information that helped probably to push certain things through, you know, how the algorithms are amplifying hate in order to keep people engaged um, and so on. So um, these were also, we were part of this coalition and um, this coalition was more than 100 civil society organizations uh, who mobilized around the issues of um, of algorithms, of um, uh, ending targeted advertising. Uh, so really to get on with a business model that um, amplifies hate. Uh, so that was also important uh, work for us to collaborate. The reason why we also focused on specific groups of people affected from online violence um, was that the DSA in our experience has one weakness. Um, this is that it has a horizontal approach. Um, they had a really, really ambitious goal here to make legislation that is applicable to all kinds of different online platforms. And I think what was also a bit overseen in the beginning or underestimated, better to say, 
was the meaning that it will also has have to fundamental rights in so many regards, um, for instance, on social media platforms like freedom of expression, but also personality rights of users and all these things that play such an important role. And with this horizontal approach that is applicable in a one-size-fits-all approach to all kinds of online platforms from a ticketing service um, to uh, um, hotel websites to whatever, um, this uh, means that the interests of some people who are the most vulnerable on the internet had to fall short and there was no option to protect their fundamental rights. And on the one hand, I understand the reasoning behind this horizontal approach. And on the other hand, also, um, I think there could have been other options to, to make these rights also um, safeguarded because, yeah, um, we... All we have to see that there is, okay, this uh, horizontal approach makes sense on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, we see that member states are also um, not able to do legislation on their own anymore to react to certain societal developments, um, such as uprising far-right extremist groups um, on the internet, certain elements like gender-based um, online violence, which has really um, a, a very large scope um, here in Germany, but we also know this from other member states. And the Digital Services Act robs the opportunity from the member states um, to react to these things with national legislation and to protect their societies. And this is why we address um, gender-based uh, online violence, but also image-based abuse, because they are very good examples for not the majority of, of people in the European Union that use, uses online services, but for a very, very large amount of people that uses social media platforms that have such an important role for our public debate um, on the internet, uh, but also in general, especially in times of a pandemic where the internet is the place to go. Um, and that's why we focus on these, on these groups to show how the DSA and the horizontal approach falls short in protecting the fundamental rights of the most vulnerable groups. Well, guys, I think your, your campaigning efforts seem to have been really, really great. Um, I've really followed the People versus Big Tech quite a bit. Um, so we're dead to be great, signed on to, to quite a lot of their letters as well. Um, so thank you so much for your campaigning efforts on, on, um, on all of it, really. Um, so what is, what is the timeline now? with the DSA, um, when when will it come into force? What will happen when it, when it does? Um, I think we might be having to wait quite a bit still until it does come into force, if I'm correct there. Uh, yeah, um, that, is, uh, that is quite uh, correct. It's, uh, we're gonna wait, a we, we're gonna need to wait a little bit. And uh, so I can maybe um, um, signpost to um, next week, because next week there will be a vote in the European Parliament, uh, because uh, as, uh, the, based on the EU policy and decision-making process, um, there are different bodies that need to approve it. You know, we had the Council and the Member States and the European Parliament. So now the European Parliament has to approve this sort of provisional agreement that was reached um, in the negotiations between the institutions that's going to happen next week already um and then uh, after that there will be um a period where they still do this lawyer linguist check so there's still very technical things to go through and uh, we expect um at least what we heard that there might be but this is also like still a provisional timeline might be 
the DSA coming into force in November. Um, so that is uh, still quite some time. Might be earlier. I don't know. Uh, so that's something uh, we don't we can't really account for. Um, and then um, there will be a period for platforms and national authorities and, and everyone to kind of prepare the grounds and set a really um, set up all the requirements, etc. Um, so uh, we are looking for, I think in the law, it said like 15 months after it comes into force or as of the 1st of January 2024, whatever comes later, you know, because they need a, a proper um, time to prepare. What is um, a little bit different, though, is the very large online platforms. Uh, they will need to start um, applying the DSA uh, much sooner. So um, I think it was three months. Josefina, correct me if I'm wrong. It was three or four months, and I have to go back and check probably. It was three or four months after it comes into the force. Um, so um, that's... I think that's better news, right? Because there is, of course, there's this balance. You need to give enough time for um, the smaller platforms because they are not as well resourced as the big ones. Uh, but as well, you need to, um, you know, be demanding for the big ones because you know they have the resources to do this fast. And uh, well, these issues actually can't wait, really. So I think this is uh, quite a good balance that they have found there. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to take still a while and. Um, I think this is also a good period for NGOs like HateAid or other NGOs who have been involved in the process or not yet to really set out and prepare because um, the work that NGOs are doing in terms of looking what's happening in the digital sphere. Um, now we're also going to have um, like regulatory authorities to go to. And, you know, HateAid has done uh, several investigations before. Uh, monitoring what is happening ahead of the elections, for example. And, you know, it ended up in the press and, and you know, then we communicated with the lawmakers. But now in the future, when the DSA is enforced, we're also going to have the regulator to approach this with. And I'm also hopeful that um, whatever we find in future investigations and other organizations that we are able to go to the regulator and show that this is happening on social media and encourage them to take the action within the framework of the DSA as well. Thanks, Leva. So I, I, I think anybody listening will want to know how it affects them directly. Like, How will the average person be impacted by the DSA and, and will it affect everybody? In the end, we can hope that the DSA will make social media, especially uh, which is our expertise, a more secure field not from the very beginning, from the first day as it comes into effect, but later on, um, because on the one hand, users will get a few more rights, but still social media is the same toxic place. Um, but we know that the commission especially um, takes the new role of being the supervising authority and of doing the um, risk assessments and um, also proposing risk mitigation measures uh, very, very seriously. And they are really uh, keen on, on getting started uh, with this and walking into the companies to see the documents and to see the data um, that they can use for these kinds of assessments. And uh, that's why we are, of course, hoping that there will be a systemic change by the DSA, um, such as more insights into the algorithms and how they work and more insights in the risk that they actually pose to society, which is a complete black box by now, 
not from the side of the risk, but from the side of how the platforms work and how it comes to that um, effects that we see in our society. Um, so we can we can hope for this, and of course we will also do what we can to make sure that the users' rights um, that are included in the DSA are tested, and also um, yeah. I would not say um, supervised, but um, that we we keep a close watch on seeing how the platforms react if they implement all of the things that are required from them. And of course, we will also do our best to educate the users about the new rights that they get so they are enabled to make use of these uh, new functions and hopefully do not have to feel so so helpless anymore. And building on that a little bit, um, do do you think that the DSA is likely to serve the purpose of protecting the people that it, it set out to, um, regardless of, of the work that you guys will be doing? So, in, as I said before, in, in general, um, we, we can hope for, for this, um, but also we see that there are many, many groups out there, mostly marginalized groups um, that are so far not well represented by the platforms, content moderators, uh, when it comes to languages, but also when it comes to really specific language of their communities. Um, this is something that is not directly tackled um, by the DSA and we will have to see what the future brings if this can be part of the risk assessment um, or not. This also depends on how the um, authorities in the member states which uh, also have to be newly designed and in many member states it's completely unclear who will take over this role um, how they how they will act uh, from a global perspective we of course can hope that the DSA is a role model and that other countries uh, will copy this kind of regulation um, because of course the global perspective is more and more import important these days and um, the DSA is only applicable in the European Union so for people in Myanmar and India or wherever um, there we could witness the harmful effects of social media um, that will not help a lot um, but of course, we can hope that the settings that the social media companies implement uh, will also help um, these groups. And um, also, um, we are quite convinced, and it's also the, the message that we hear from, from some decision makers, the DSA will not be the end. We see that according, uh, not that additionally to the DSA, um, there is a terrorist um, content um, that is regulated. Then we see that there is a lot of regulation on um, on child abuse um, on the internet and we expect that there will be other fields where we need um, another legislation to to add to the DSA because the DSA has such a general approach and there will be other risks that need to be reacted by law. That's so informative. I really feel tooled up and uh, I hope we'll be able to invite you back uh, to keep us updated in a few months. So just to wrap up our, our podcast today, I wanted to ask you, whether you think, whether you know, are the social media platforms on board with this? How how are they reacting to the DSA? Um, yeah, I th I think it's uh, they have to be on board, right? So I don't think first of all they don't have a lot of choice. It's uh, if they want to be a part of the European market and access uh, the users in the EU, they have to be on board. And but I, I think I want to just go back a little bit to the process and and uh, social media companies because they have spent 
enormous money and enormous efforts to lobby uh, the EU institutions in the making of the DSA. And I think this is also shows, first of all, how important this act is and how um, they want to maintain uh, the freedoms and the powers that they have. And I think this is also one of the one of the points why people versus big tech was so important uh, in this process, because we had to counter as a civil society the big tech lobbying efforts altogether, uh, because we as civil society, we don't need we don't have the resources that they do. And um, like the biggest 10, 10 biggest uh, tech companies like tech and telecom, they uh, operate uh, with a lobbying uh, budget of around 30 million euros. So it's um, it's something that we can't even dream of, right? <laughs> In terms of civil society to have this kind of money, right? What could we do with it? Uh, probably good things, but you know, we don't have that access. And they, they also have an um, enormous amount of lobbyists uh, in-house uh, going to the institutions, etc. So, um, and, and here the biggest fight, what they were pushing against, and I'm not sure if, if if you are, uh, if whoever is in Belgium probably also saw on Twitter it as well, because I was constantly bombarded with um, on, on Twitter with the ads from Meta, um, how they help communities. And I think this is one part of the narratives that they try to move um policymakers and people in Brussels to think and it's quite effective because Brussels functions on Twitter a lot you know in that space the policy people are there and uh, how to kind of divert this whole thing from harms that are happening on these platforms to the good that they do, that they do and of course we we don't really object that there are good things happening on platforms as well right but the fact that why we are here is to tackle the harms on the platforms as well and make sure that um, that they are regulated and uh, yeah so the biggest the biggest fight here was about the whole business model on the targeted ads and uh, it was uh, not entirely successful there was a significant step made forward you know to ban the targeting for minors and also um, on um, sensitive categories like for instance that they can't be um, uh, targeting you based on your religion or sexual orientation that's really important but then you see how still they were so successful in this process uh, with um, you know in the in the negotiation process to make sure that um, there is um, no hard ban is made so this is just one example of the big tech lobby um, and uh, it's it's really a powerhouse that they have and uh, people sometimes call it like a corporate capture um, that, that the EU is under. And uh, I, yeah, I think this is something to add, uh, whether they are on board or not, they will have to be. But um, the fact how much money and effort they have spent to weaken the DSA, that is quite significant. Right now, uh, we, of course, expect that there will be loopholes for the platforms and we know them. We suit them um, many times and we also watch them closely in Germany that they will use any of these loopholes that is um, given by them by with the interpretation of the text. And although the DSA is a brand new law, um, there are many, many um, questions and a lot of room for interpretation um, that will either be done um, by, by the courts or uh, we have to see uh, which interpretation um, is favored um, by the law community and lawyers community um, around um, that is um, already dealing with the DSA. And so um, we will also, we also see that this is a task of civil society to watch closely what the platforms are doing and which loopholes they are using and 
We will also um, take the means that we have um, to take them to court about this, to make clear that there is a clarification of these insecurities as soon as possible. Um, and also we will keep the, the public informed about this um, to increase the pressure because this is what we can say about uh, after three years of experience working with and also sometimes against the platforms um, that public pressure is the thing that helps most. Um, so this is also something that we are of course using here. Well. Josephina, Lever, thank you so, so much. That has been incredibly informative um, for us and hopefully for our listeners as well. Um, so this is a special episode of Zooming in on Hate that has been focusing on the Digital Services Act. And once again, thank you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So be sure to subscribe to our mailing list at www.eooh.eu. To, to hear about our next episode or join us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue and join in the conversation. And a special shout out to our funder, the European Commission's Right, Equality and Citizenship Programme by DG Justice. Thanks so much for joining us.